Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. So hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Ambassador Francis Rooney, a board member for the Wilson Center's Latin America program. He's the former U.S. representative for Florida's 11th Congressional District, and he's the former U.S. ambassador to the Holy See under President George W. Bush. He's served as CEO of Rooney Holdings, building significant projects, including presidential libraries for both George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. I've been to both of those libraries, and they're amazing. They're really beautiful buildings. That's great. The Dallas Cowboys, the Texas Rangers, and Houston Texan Stadiums, the U.S. Capitol Visitor Center. What a beautiful building that is the Walter Reed Army Institute for Research, the International Terminal at Hartsfield-Jackson Airport in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's the author of the book, and the reason I wanted to speak with him is about the book The Global Vatican, an inside look at the Catholic Church, world politics, and the extraordinary relationship between the United States and the Holy See. Ambassador, I really appreciate you coming on today to talk about your book, which is, was published several years ago, but I think is still very, very relevant. I love the book. I read it recently. And so I wanted to have a conversation with Ambassador Rooney to talk about his career, but particularly his diplomatic experience in the Vatican, his book, The Global Vatican. So Ambassador Rooney, thanks again for making time today. Daniel, thank you for having me on. So tell us a little bit about your background. I gave a little bit of a biographical sketch, but tell us a little bit about your background and how did you end up becoming U.S. ambassador to the Vatican? Well, Kathleen and I were involved briefly in the uh, 1978 campaign for HW, and some of my family were were friends of 41. So I got to know all the Bush guys, Neil and Jeb and George W. And then um, as it turned out a few years later, 1989 or 90, we built the stadium for him when he was managing partner of the Texas Rangers. So I spent a lot of time with him for a couple of years working through the construction. And then he decided to run for governor. So I certainly got involved in helping him run for governor of Texas. And then lo and behold, he became president. So I did a lot of things with him, for him in the first term, missions and things. And then in the second term, he asked me to be the ambassador to the Holy See. It's amazing. It's kind of funny. I, I thought he would ask me somewhere in Latin America because he'd sent me to Latin America for things. And he knew I was involved in Latin America. And so I said that there in the Oval Office. I said, I thought you were going to send me somewhere in Latin America. He said, don't you want to go? I said, oh, no. Yep, I want to go. Don't you worry about it. Can't wait. <laughs> That's great. Tell us about what it was like being U.S. ambassador to the Vatican, that you have some really interesting stories in the book. They're very memorable. But tell us a little bit about what was that like? A Holy See ambassador generally does the same things that any secular ambassador does. You know, advance U.S. interests diplomatically by engagement with the host country diplomatic officials, promote understanding and appreciation of American values, which in the Holy See, I took that to mean things like American citizenship, which is different than the lineage citizenship of Europeans, and the First Amendment, and particularly uh, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, which no one else seems to have figured out but us. Although sometimes I wonder if we have it figured out right now. And so those were great things. And and to take care of Americans that come visit. And the president warned me right there in his office. He said, you're going to get a lot of visitors. And we had visitors every day. 
Wow. We did the best we could to take care of them. We had a lot of dinners all the time, lunches, afternoon coffees, you name it. And uh, we worked, Kathleen and I worked it very hard to do the best job we could for President Bush. So part of the book is a history of the diplomatic relations between the U.S. and the Vatican. The U.S. and the Vatican did not really have formal diplomatic relations until the second half of the 20th century, but they had sort of informal diplomatic relations for a long period of time. Talk about why was it that it took so long for us to have formal diplomatic relations and talk about how that diplomatic relationship evolved. Yeah, there, there was resistance to a formal ambassadorship to the, to the Holy See because of the Catholic thing for a long time. And there were um, chiefs of mission back in the 1800s, Rufus King being one. And then there was the, uh, during Roosevelt's time, obviously, uh, with Myron Taylor, a leading industrialist, former chairman of U.S. Steel, was a personal representative, showed how important President Roosevelt took it. I put some quotes in there about that period in my book. Truman tried to move forward on a full diplomatic relationship and couldn't get that done. But it's interesting, Will Imboden, who used to be in the Bush administration, has written a book about the uh, religion and the end of the Cold War. And here's Truman, the Baptist, had to rely on the Holy See and the Catholic Church to fight communism because when he went around trying to recruit Protestants, they weren't interested in helping out. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, Will Imboden's a good friend of mine. He wrote a really important book called The Peacemaker as well about the history of Reagan's foreign policy, which I recommend to people as well. I think we may have had him on the show to talk about his book. And so I'm really glad you referenced Will Imboden, who is someone I really respect and I think is really quite thoughtful about these issues. But- I would recommend the book. It's, 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 a, and people, it's another one of these kind of things like the Holy See relationship people don't realize. They don't realize the role of religion in a lot of diplomatic and secular engagements around the world. I agree. Who ultimately brought about formal relations between the Holy See and the United States, Ambassador? Ronald Reagan and his friend Bill Wilson, who he made the first ambassador, felt that the Holy See could play a strong role in taking down communism and the Iron Curtain. And that was Reagan's penultimate goal. And obviously Pope uh, John Paul II was well out in front on that. And he was more than willing to lend his bully pulpit and soft power to couple with the United States. He played a very important role. I mean, I I put in the book about him going to Poland and telling Jaruzelski that Poland is just one big concentration camp. And, uh, of course, the United States worked very well with the Holy See under the table to supply things that the Holy See needed to get distributed to the people of Poland to help their uprising. There's a part in the book where... There was a sense there may have been a Soviet spy within the Vatican, if I recall correctly. There were a few Eastern European ones undercover as priests and monsignors that they finally ferreted out. Oh, my goodness. We had some over there in in them, too. So it's a two-way street on spies. My goodness. uh, And I put in there some of the some of the former classified material about the GRU and the and the KGB surveillance of Pope John Paul and the memos about how all means should be used to impede his advancement when he was still, uh, before he became Pope. They, they saw this guy come in a long time. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. You know, you, you referenced this, that many leaders have underestimated or even dismissed the influence of the Vatican or the Catholic Church or religion more broadly in diplomatic affairs and foreign policy. I certainly find that here in Washington that this is, I think people would rather talk about anything other than religion and foreign policy. It's, a, it's sometimes a little bit of a tricky topic. I'm not uncomfortable with it at all. But what role does the Vatican play? And what role does the Catholic Church play in diplomatic and world affairs? 
Well, yeah, I, see, I think it's a tremendous loss for people to be narrow about their understanding of the role that religion can play in the world anyway. How many conflicts are religiously oriented around the world? But second of all, you know, the, the soft power of the Holy See is a unique platform to affect change in the world. And we saw it in Russia, but we see it all the time. We saw it when Obama conducted two years worth of clandestine diplomacy to figure out how to reopen the mission in Cuba. Not necessarily saying whether we're for that or not, but the role of the Holy See in a clandestine operation over two years is kind of unique because these priests aren't trying to take credit for what they do. Can you imagine a politician uh, doing something for two years and not finally blowing blowing the message so he could get credit for it? <laughs> exactly. But I think about all the conflicts. I mean, I think about, I'll just list some places. Congo, there's a important role for the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is looked to as a peacekeeper in the Congo, or someone who's sort of above politics and trusted. That came up when I was over there with against Kabila. And we recruited, uh, when the Holy See weighed in, it made it a lot easier for the Europeans to support the United States efforts. Also in the against the Lord's Liberation Army in Rwanda and the uh, uh, Uganda. Yeah, exactly. And I would just say that in many parts of the world, religion is the central North Star. And for many people in the United States, you know, I go to church on Sunday, I'm a practicing Catholic, and I try and take it seriously. And so I would just say that in many parts of the developing world in particular, it's really important. And so if I think about or like Nicaragua, for example, the Catholic Church is on is being repressed right now. And so I think the cat, you know, how we think about human rights in a place like Nicaragua, or we think about political civ open civil society or, you know, people talk in technical terms about closing civil society space. You know, this is absolutely the case in terms of how they're crushing the Catholic Church in a place like Nicaragua, how the Catholic Church is treated or Muslims are treated in mainland China is absolutely a part of kind of the critique of the Chinese Communist Party. The What's going on in, in the Ukraine-Russia war absolutely has a religious dimension or it's been weaponized, if you will. So there's any number of different components to it. And I think it's sometimes, I think it's underestimated, dismissed, or sort of, a, I don't want to call it ignored, but maybe overlooked is maybe a way to describe it. Yeah, it's good to remember that Pope John Paul went to Nicaragua and Ortega tried to cut off his microphone. He shook his <laughs> finger at him the same way he did Jaroszelski. He said, you will not silence me. And ironically, the, the uh, priest that was th at that time on the side of Ortega and helping the government out has changed sides, and he's one of the people contending strongly against Ortega right now. Unfortunately, we had a little problem with Cardinal Obando y Bravo over there. He's a little bit uh, co-opted and wasn't as forceful as he could have been. He could have taken a page out of the Venezuelan Episcopal Conference, Bishop uh, Porus and people like that, who were very strong against Chavez from day one. So... You know, some people will ask, why does the Catholic Church have a seat at the United Nations? I'm sure, I know you talk about it in your book. Talk, why is that? Why does the Catholic Church get a seat at the United Nations? Well, it's a very important platform to advance global goals. And the Holy See is the penultimate global diplomat. They're not regional. They're not parochial. And the issues that they focus on are top-level issues of human suffering, human dignity, freedom, religious freedom, human rights, improving the lot of the poor, which we feel comes through capitalism and jobs. And quite frankly, so did Leo XIII, even though he was widely misunderstood in his cyclical. Right, exactly. That's important. 
you served under George W. Bush and you served under Pope Benedict, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was after, after John Paul II had died, John Paul the Great had died. Have you had any interaction with Pope Francis? And if you ha- whether you have or you haven't, could you just comment a little bit about how would you characterize Pope Benedict's papacy as it relates to foreign policy? And how would you characterize Pope Francis's papacy as it relates to foreign policy? Yeah, I, I did meet Pope Francis with my daughter and my wife when we were over there for a Catholic legislators conference while I was in Congress and everybody got to go talk to him. And it's such a classic Holy See vignette that the same photographer was there when we'd been there 10 years ago. And he nudged the Pope and said, that's, that's Ambassador Rooney. So the Pope was really nice, you know. <laughs> but the, they're very different. You know, Pope Benedict really believed in the uh, the diplomatic role the Holy See could play with other secular governments and driving these, these big policies and dogmas. He was brutally clear about Iran and Ahmadinejad and what was going on in, in different places and his suspicions of the Orthodox Russian church, et cetera. Now, Pope Francis seems to be a little more oriented towards the human condition, less oriented towards doctrine. And his focuses have been about the uh, uh, environment, which has a lot of good things in it. So talk about, I'm just thinking about things like there's any number of different issues that this climate change, and you've touched on this, U.S. immigration issues, the conflict in Ukraine, the Catholic Church has roles and they have a voice on these issues. Talk a little bit about how they use those their voice in these different contexts. Yeah, I think that both popes have spoken up to some degree about the immigration challenges, but Pope Benedict, he was he was always talking about migration and the need for a responsible migration, for people to be able to move but be documented and enter a country under legal circumstances. And and he was very clear. And we have a world that's migrating everywhere right now, and we haven't come to terms with how to deal with it. I wish if I was a dictator for about an hour, in addition to putting in term limits for legislators, I would uh, enact President Bush's 2007 immigration reform. Exactly. Exactly. Talk, talk about in terms of how you, if you look at the, there are, I'm going to mangle this ambassador, but we've been doing a lot on Ukraine and Ukraine reconstruction here at CSIS. We have a high level commission on Ukraine reconstruction. I've been there several times. I was actually in Kiev a couple of weeks ago and met President Zelensky. And um, there seems to be, you know, there's the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which is has a, a Greek right that is has loyalty to the Pope, has about 10% of the population of Ukraine. And then there are two different strands of the Orthodoxy of the Orthodox Church. I'm not going to attempt to name the names, the two of them, but one of them is an institution that was that has been there for many centuries and has up until very, very recently, or may still be the case, where the senior-most bishop in Ukraine was named or sort of suggested by the Russian bishop, and I think that was up until very, very recently. And now there's a different Orthodox church that was established in 2018 through a technical concept called autocephaly, and I'm not I'm not going to attempt to to fully explain what it is. Where I think what it is is that the most senior bishop in or- the Orthodox world is based in Istanbul. And that senior bishop granted the country of Ukraine its own 
independent Orthodox Church. I think technically that's what it is. But there's a dimension to the conflict, it seems to me, that has, there's a significant religious dimension to the conflict that's not been, many people don't want to discuss in Washington or it's not unfamiliar to them. I'd just be curious if you have any reflections on this. Yeah, well, that all started with the Falukwe business in 1054, the Great Schism. And there's a lot of, as you allude to, complexity among Orthodox people as to who rules who, who's in charge of who, et cetera. And uh, you, know, you have the Greek Orthodox Church that thinks they're the end all and be all. And then you have Orthodox churches scattered all through Eastern Europe and the old Slavic areas. And you got the Russian Orthodox Church. But it's a very complicated structure. But what they all share is a suspicion of Roman Catholic Church. They're kind of united on that. And we have a little bit of suspicion of them as well. And uh, that's okay. We have That's a dogmatic issue that we don't need to get into here be way in the weeds. You probably understand it, but most people wouldn't care about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a secular diplomatic discussion. But what's happening over there is they, they all those churches can play a constructive role if they're not co-opted by a secular government. And the Orthodoxes seem to get co-opted more than our Catholic groups. I mean, even in Italy, where the government takes a strong role in the Catholic Church. Ambassador, talk about the role of the Catholic Church in Latin America. I know you have a lot of, you've had a longstanding interest in Latin America, and that's evolved over time. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, the Catholic Church has a very strong influence in Latin America. And, you know, you mentioned about secularism and the post-religious era. You know, it's kind of, uh, even though a lot of Latin Americans don't go to church as regularly as their parents might have, they all have the Virgin of Guadalupe in their wallet, statues of saints in their house, Etc. And they're very aligned with the iconography and the principles behind the church. The church is their rock, too. Yeah, that's interesting. How does the Catholic Church operate in places that are perhaps more, you know, I'm thinking about places where there's perhaps religion is sort of outlawed, whether it's Cuba or maybe a place like China or other kind of communist countries. How have they operated and how, how do they interact with the governments? Well, a few years ago, we did a the Notre Dame Architecture School, which Kathleen and I were on the board of, went to Cuba for two weeks with Father Malloy and some of the other priests and the rest of the board. And we went to church there, met the priests. They were allowed to have Catholic Mass, but they had to pre-clear their sermons. And there was probably a KGB equivalent sitting in the back every time. They did let us say Mass in the Hotel Nacional. Uh, we just had to say it back in the back where nobody would know about it. And the people are totally secular. They, they're kind of like those the Bulgarians were after the fall of the, the Iron Curtain. They don't have any kind of anchor at all. And uh, I'd like to think that they may get one back if they got freed up someday. But it's going to take some rebuilding. You know, when the Pope came, Castro made him a celebrity, but not necessarily a religious figure. Yeah. What In this world that I described earlier as perhaps a post-religious world, are you— the, the church, what's make the case for why the church still matters in this might be described for, for those who may be skeptical of religion. Why does the church still matter in foreign affairs? I, I know why, but I'd like to hear your argument as to why well, that's the case. You think about how aligned the, the church's doctrines and our foreign policy objectives are based on human rights, human dignity, religious freedom freedom of speech. There's no other two institutions in the world that are as dedicated to those four principles as the United States and the Holy See. We're natural allies. 
I 100% agree. Ambassador, this has been great. I'm so happy to have had you on my show today. Thanks for making uh, time for this. I really enjoyed your book, The Global Vatican, An Inside Look at the Catholic Church. I encourage people to go and read Ambassador Rooney's book, which I enjoyed uh, every minute of. And um, it was great to have you on today, Ambassador. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. Hope to see you soon. Great. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 